Hello there. It has been a long and adventurous past two weeks, but here we are on episode five, and I am so glad that y'all are actually tuning in again. The last couple of weeks, like I said, have been extremely busy. One of the uh, things that I did last weekend was I actually attended an event in downtown DC, which is a Mardi Gras ball. And um, um, amongst all the festivities and everything, it was a great weekend. Just as the weekend is closing, we get news, of course, across television. And I'm sure everybody already knows what I'm talking about. Um, when there was a tragic uh, news that was given about nine people who were killed in a helicopter accident, one of which was the NBA legend Kobe Bryant. And of course, everyone is glued to the television. Everyone is glued to social media because they're reporting it. And as I'm sitting here watching um, the friends that I was with, how they were just com completely consumed by everything that was going on and everything that was being reported. And you could literally watch everything within them shift as far as like their mood being totally somber being concerned because of course there was all the different, you know, conflicting news stories. There were some half truths, some hard to believe truths. I mean, just hearing about Kobe being killed in and of itself was hard to believe. So all the other news that was coming, I'm watching everybody who's around me kind of take it in. And this was for the duration of the entire day because we were at an event that was still going on and we still had, you know, social things that need, you know, not needed to be done, but that were being done. And everybody is, is stuck. They are just in complete shock. I won't say that I wasn't stuck because obviously like I was paying attention to what was happening. And I, just, I honestly, like I couldn't believe the news at first because this dude is the same age as me. So I'm like, nah, you know, but of course we know, you know, we, we, we have no idea when our time is actually up. Right. I got to thinking and I was like, you know, why am I kind of like on the outside watching what seemed to be everybody already starting to grieve. And I started to think about the times in my life where I've had to deal with death. I started to look back. I remember whenever I was like a little girl, I want to say probably about like four and six I think that was the first time I remember like any sort of funeral or any sort of, you know, event. And I even remember then I didn't understand it or like I didn't like the way that felt. It just felt weird to me. Um, I was fortunate enough that majority of my my upbringing, I didn't I didn't have to deal with any anything that was, you know, I guess crazy, so to speak, like that. And then once I got into the military, that was when death started to hit a little bit closer to home to me, which was the first one was my grandfather, um, who I was, who I actually grew up with and, um, not grew up with, like lived with him or whatever, but like he was a constant in my life. And I remember when he passed away, I was a couple of States away. So obviously like it was, it wasn't that difficult for me to get back home, but I did not want to be involved in the funeral proceedings, you know, the wake or any of that stuff. I didn't want to be involved in it. Some people didn't understand, like, you're so close to your grandfather. Like, why would you do this? Why wouldn't you show up? Why wouldn't you want to be there for it? I remember so vividly, I was like, I don't ever want to see what my grandfather looks like in that sort of position. Like, I remember the last time I hung out with him, whenever I had gone home on like a, a long weekend or whatever, 
Like, I remember what he looked like. I remember our conversations. I remember, you know, him being alive and being, you know, the man that I knew him to be. So me going home and sitting around and crying about, you know, losing him with everyone just wasn't what I wanted to do. There was a lot of people that didn't understand it. But for me, I was, I was, I was comfortable with that. I was happy with it. Then we press forward a little bit. Death looks a little bit different. I had actually gone home on leave and being, you know, a little hot ass. I ended up, you know, partying with a few of my friends and me and one of my friends took things a little bit too far. I got pregnant. <laughs> um, I don't think I have to explain how that whole part happens, but yeah, I got pregnant. And though I am very much a pro-choice person, my choice is that I wasn't going to have an abortion. I wasn't going to get rid of the baby. Me and my friend had a conversation and that was what we were going to do. I was going to go ahead and I was going to, you know, give birth to this baby and we were going to co-parent as best as possible. No, let me stop lying. We tried to date each other, but nah, no, that just wasn't happening. I, you know, I made the choice of, of keeping my child. Here it is. I, you know, I go through this pregnancy. Oh, well, let me go ahead and caveat this as well. I never wanted kids. Considering, you know, I was being fast that night, you would think, I, you know, I wanted kids, but I never really wanted kids. I did not want children. I felt like the world is a horrible place. Why would I want to give birth to somebody and just to make them be tortured? You know, the world is only getting worse. And plus, there was also the selfish side of me, too. It was the part of me that was like, wait a minute. I got to like do stuff for somebody else. Ugh, no. Like they make noises. They smell funny. I don't want to do that. Because I have a younger brother who is almost 13 years younger than me. So I vividly remember <laughs> what a baby is like. And I did not want that for myself at all. I'm I'm pregnant. I'm carrying this kid. And you know how you look at like magazines or even with celebrities and stuff that they post up nowadays. And you know, they're 68 years old, you know, full-blown pregnant. And they look better than I do, you know, on a regular day. You're like, how do they look so daggone good? She's pregnant. Like she should be run down and everything. And no, they just look amazing. Well, that was me. You know, here I am. I look like I had swallowed, you know, half of a watermelon, honestly. I just got this big old belly, but I'm in the army. So like I'm staying fit. I'm still running a few miles every couple of days. You know, I'm, I'm in shape. I'm great. I'm good. And I go into my regular doctor's appointment and they're like, all right, yeah, everything is good. You're fine. They're, you know, looking at um, the size of the baby and everything, because of course we did the ultrasound, they're measuring her. Oh, and that's another thing. I found out at that point, uh, over the process of time, obviously, that I was having a girl. When I wake up the next morning and I'm not given the normal signs of like her kicking and everything because I was hungry, that wasn't happening. I overslept, which was weird because normally as soon as I would start getting hungry, she would start kicking. So obviously I would have to wake up and eat. None of that was happening. So I call the doctor's office and I'm like, hey, the baby's not moving. They're like, oh, well, you know, you're getting toward the end of your pregnancy because at this point I'm like eight months pregnant. You're toward the end of your pregnancy. The baby starts to you know, slow down as far as like moving and everything because they don't have as much space. So let's just wait until lunchtime. And if you haven't had any movement or anything, then give us a call back and we'll figure things out. So I do that. And I was like, okay, it's 12 o'clock. And I still have not felt this baby move at all. So I call into the into the hospital and they said, okay, well, you need to come in. I go in and as, you know, they, they were doing the regular, you know, checkups, obviously, as soon as you get there, 
They make you go ahead and do a urine test just to make sure like your hormone levels and everything are still what it needs to be that says that you're, you know, as far along in a pregnancy as what they would expect. That came back fine. They do the ultrasound and they can't see a heartbeat. They don't hear a heartbeat. So they're like, wait a minute, let's let's do a different one. So then they do an internal ultrasound, which this might be a little bit too graphic for some of you, some of y'all listening, but they basically take this wand and insert it into you to be able to get a clo- like a up close view of the baby because you know they figure if they can't catch it through all the skin and fluid and everything in your stomach, then they'll go the other way. <laughs> so they're checking and there's nothing. No heartbeat, no movement, no nothing. And at the time, I'm 18 years old and I'm just kind of staring at the, the doctor and the nurse and they were like, you know, what happened? And I said, what do you mean what happened? I don't know. Like my appointment was fine yesterday. And of course they're looking at all of the notes from my appointment from just the day before. And they're like, we don't, there's no explanation. Like this baby was perfectly healthy yesterday. And today she's like, there's no heartbeat, no nothing. It has been confirmed that I have a child that is in my belly that is no longer alive, that no longer has a heartbeat, has no sort of activity that says that we need to continue this pregnancy. At that point, they asked me, you know, where's the father or whatever. I was like, nah, we're good. I'm going to just wait until my mom gets out here. And this was probably about like a three and a half hour drive or whatever. So I called my mom and I'm like, hey, look, this is what's going on. They're about to induce me because I have to give birth to this baby. There's this baby that's not going to cry, that's not going to look at me, and I won't be able to go home with her. So at that point, I'm at the hospital, and I'm just hanging out, and I'm waiting. And as soon as my mom gets there, they go ahead and they give me all of the medication and stuff, what, um, the Pitocin to make my body to start going into contractions. And I literally give birth to this this little girl, this little girl who you know has her dad's hands, she has my mouth, the shape of her eyes looked like they were mine, her nose was his, like... And at first they actually wanted to take her away and they don't want her to, they, I guess they, normal procedure would be for us to not necessarily see the child. And maybe it's too traumatic for some people, but I specifically requested that I wanted to see her. And my my mom looked at me kind of like, I said, well, no, I want to see, you know, what she looks like. I want to see, you know, who she is. So I'm looking at this baby and everything. I, I actually remember like they took pictures of me holding her. But I'm looking at everything about this baby because I know this is it. Like once I hand her over, this is over. I look at her. I memorize everything that I can about her face. And then I hand her over and the nurse is like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. And I think they probably felt like she's going to snap any minute, (laughs) which um, I think if I was on the outside of me looking at that, I would have probably felt the same way as well. They, you know, I go ahead and I go through the recovery process or whatever, but because of the fact that I've given birth to an actual child, like I've gone through labor, my body has gone through all sorts of stuff that, you know, any other person who is bringing home a newborn baby that they just gave birth to would have gone through. I still had six weeks that I didn't have to go back to the army. So I went home to Louisiana and I remember I was at my, I was at my parents' house and I remember everybody wanted to, wanted to talk about it, you know, and it wasn't that they wanted to talk about it. It was that they, they kind of hovered over me. Like, are you okay? Almost kind of waiting for me to crack. I didn't feel like, like, I didn't feel like that was in me. I didn't feel like that was about to happen. So I called one of my friends and I was like, fish, 
one of my friends, Felicia, her name, we call her fish. I was like, girl, um, can I come and stay with you? She's like, yeah, okay. So I grab up all of my stuff. <laughs> I grab up all of my stuff. And I tell my mom, I'm like, hey, look, I'm going over and I'm going to go stay with fish. She's like, all right. So I go. And this is probably like on day two or three after I just gave birth to, to my daughter. I'm, I'm set up in uh, at my friend's house. and. She's just like, you know, well, are you okay? I said, yeah, I just need to get away from everybody because everybody is dwelling on and harping on the fact that I lost her. It's only making it worse for me. Like I just, I, I need to like detach from it. She's like, oh, okay. So she's, you know, going about doing her, you know, day-to-day life stuff. And I'm in the room, you know, relaxing. And of course my body is still going through everything. Like my, my breasts get massive, you know, just engorged with milk and everything. And I would say that was probably the hardest part because my body is going through things like there's a baby there, but there's not a baby there. So my, you know, 18 year old mind is having to process all of this. My 18 year old heart is having to go through all of these emotions and everything, but I I was okay with it. I was okay with it. And I came to a, a, a peaceful place about it. I, I would say very early on, you know, probably like within the first week or so of me being at home, I was like, okay. This is what happened and we will, you know, I'm just going to, just going to deal with it. And I had, I went on and I had her shipped back home. So I, I buried her and everything. Then I went back to, to my normal life. I went back to, back to my army life. And even whenever I checked back in my drill sergeants at the time, they, you know, they would, they sat me down and they were like, are you okay? Are you sure you're ready to go back to work? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, I'm good. So now. I am back into my normal routine. And over the course of the next couple of months, I'm just kind of going through the motions. And then one random day in September, I thought, I I just felt like super, super sad. And I ended up going and getting a tattoo with her name because I named her and everything. So I go and I get a tattoo. But then as I sit back, I was like, oh my God, today was her due date. That was the day I was actually due to have her. And so I just, I kind of sealed that that time frame off and it was like, all right, we're, we're done. We're good. And whenever I tell people that story, everybody's like, oh my God, that's so sad that, you know, I feel so bad for you. And that's definitely not to mock how other people feel about what I went through. I actually tell them at that time frame, I'm like, no, I accepted it. That pregnancy that I had, that daughter that I had served some sort of purpose for me. And what I would like to believe is that that pregnancy, that little girl that I didn't get to watch grow up convinced me that I actually wanted to be a mom. (laughs) This was never, ever hearing her cry, never, ever hearing her call me mama and none of that stuff. She convinced me that, you know what? Yes, this world is crazy and it is horrid and it is wretched, but that's, you know, That's the world that we live in, but that's not the world that I, you know, that I can create for my children. So I actually accepted that prior to me being pregnant with Jessica, I was a wild child. Like people that have met me now, if you think I'm wild now, (laughs) prior to her, I was hell on wheels. I would fight anybody. I would get in some of the craziest situations and really not care. And I'm like, maybe that was 
life's way of saying, hey, look, you need to slow down and stop and pay attention to the things that's going on around you. And the only way that that was going to happen was if I was no, like if I was forced to no longer be able to be selfish, if I had to think about somebody else. I remember very early, like within like the first couple of weeks of me finding out that I was pregnant with her, I ended up getting in a fight with some dude in the uh, courtyard, some guy from the Navy, because he said something that I didn't like. And here it is, I'm pregnant and I'm fighting. And all of these things started replaying for me after I lost her. And I was like, I would never, ever want to be that type of mom. I don't ever want to be that mom that's like, oh, yeah, you heard about so-and-so's mom? Yeah, she was out in the streets cutting up with so-and-so. I never, ever wanted to be that. But what I did know that I wanted was I wanted to be a mom. I wanted to feel that thing again that I felt while I was pregnant with her. I wanted to look forward to stuff like I was feeling when I was pregnant with her. So enter Sydney and Alexia and Alyssa. Had I not, you know, taken the time to accept that that season of my life was what it was because I, there, no amount of me um, dwelling on it was going to change that she was gone or, you know, um, allowing the hard stuff to be this dark cloud over me was going to bring about anything good in my mind. So I had to accept all the good stuff about her and all of the good things about her made me want to be that mom. And so then once I had my kids, I, I knew how fragile life was even before, you know, I, I was actually given the life of a child. I knew how fragile it was. So I knew I was going to do any and everything that I possibly could to give my children the the safety, security that they deserved as me being their mom, that I was going to cherish every moment that I possibly had with them because I knew just how how easy it was for me to not be able to have those moments with them. Because when I, like I said, when I was pregnant with her, she I was a picture of, picture of stinking health. Had literally gone to the doctor the day before and they looked at everything and they were like, yeah, this baby is, you know, on, on par to be, you know, delivered at the right time. She's going to be big and healthy and everything was fine with her. But then the next day, everything wasn't that quick. So it changed, it changed things for me. It changed my outlook on what it was that I wanted for myself as far as my future was concerned. So even though I, you know, I grieved. I didn't grieve and allow myself myself to stay in a place of being somber and and broken and hurt. I I took all of I guess all of that energy that could have been something negative for me and I made it something positive because she was already gone. She was already gone and me being negative about it was only going to continue to make that to me make that time of my life even harder, you know, um, than it was to just lose her. If I had just stayed in that place of just, like I said, just ache and pain. So I was very mindful, like what, as everybody was kind of seemingly trying to hold me into that place. And I don't think that they were doing it intentionally. I think they, they were genuinely concerned, but their concern was actually only hurting me. So I had to step away from it. I had to pull myself out of that place and go and stay at my friend's house for, you know, a few weeks to just allow myself to, to process it, how I needed to process it. And I have zero problems talking about Jessica to this day because it wasn't this horrifically tragic thing. Yes, it was hard and it hurt when it happened. And I can still remember 
the sounds in the hospital. I can remember the looks on everybody's faces. I can remember exactly what her face looks like. But that was that that was that moment. And I wasn't going to allow that to drag out beyond what it should have been. And for me, not to to maintain my peace and my sanity and my mental and emotional health. I had to accept it and and move past it. So then that brought me back to whenever I started watching everybody and how they were responding to this horrible news about these kids and this NBA legend losing their lives in the blink of an eye. Definitely not anything that anybody expected. And I started thinking about it and I'm watching social media and I'm listening to, you know, the people that are around me. And I was like, why, why is everybody still breaking their heart? Why are they forcing themselves to have their heart broken over and over and not allowing themselves to start healing? And I'm not talking about like that exact same day or whatever. I, I get, you know, that we, we need to be allowed space to process what has happened. But whenever I'm watching everybody, you know, stay on social media because they, they're watching everything that's happening. You know, it's all of these horrible stories. And then, of course, let's not get into how everybody wants to bring up the bad things that this guy was accused of, you know, what, 17 years ago. You, you had people that wanted to bring that up as well. So then that brings on a whole other set of, you know, of emotional and mental strife and strain. And I, what I really just started to think about was, at some point, we we have to look at at grief and loss, and and recognize that yes, you know, bad bad things have happened, bad things are happening, and bad things probably will happen later on down the road. But we 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 owe it to ourselves to kind of protect our space. I think because of us having such immediate access to everything. We don't protect our space. I protected my space by me separating myself from everybody and allowing myself to grieve without the extra reminders that I, I felt like I didn't need. This situation made me realize that as much as we talk about mental health and mental well-being, we we don't necessarily protect ourselves the way that we should. Accept what has happened. We don't deny it. I actually posted something on social media the other day. And because I, ha I had a conversation with one of my friends and they were just like, you know, Natasha, it's almost like you kind of ignore things. And I had a long conversation with her. But um, what I what I posted was it's not that I ignore tragedy. It's that I acknowledge it and do what I can not to be overtaken by it. Lives end, but mine has not. I must go on living fervently because my sands are running out as well. Every grain counts. And rather than me allowing so many grains of my sands of time to be overridden with grief and sorrow and sadness. It's almost like I kind of want to put put a pause button and say, all right, what, what do I learn in this moment? What do I receive in this moment that can allow me to go on and live my life and be better? Having known who this person was or having allowed this person to impact my life, what would they want me what what would they want my future to look like so i move forward that way with jessica it was me being me being as best of a mom as i possibly can it was me recognizing how fragile life is 
and how honored I am to be able to even give birth to a child. Because that's, that's a whole other topic we could talk about is not everybody is given that right. Not everybody is given that, that joy of being able to give birth to a child, you know, from their own body, you know, or even adopt a child. They, they don't have that, um, for themselves. So I'm not going to overlook that and I'm not going to, um, take that moment for granted or take that opportunity for granted. So that's what I learned with her. And when it comes to this situation with the helicopter crash and, I don't want to say more importantly, because it's not more importantly, because there were nine people and there were children on that plane, on that helicopter. But I would say more so what we would look at even more is the fact that obviously there's a lot of people across the world that are grieving because of this one individual who passed away in this crash. But what what did he stand for? What did he mean? And why did he mean so much to you? So if you take all of those things and why he meant so much to you, and for a lot of people, it was because he had this, you know, one, I'll say one of the things that I, I recognize a lot of people talk about is his work ethic. His training ethic was off the charts. And if this is what he, why he encouraged you and why he meant so much to you, because he did fight so hard to be as great as he was, then how do you apply that to your life? How do you apply that to your day-to-day life to say, you know what, because I, you know, I was such a huge fan of this man and because I was such a huge supporter of him and now he's not there. That legacy of grind it out (laughs) to be great. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to implement that into my life every day. Whatever it is that I do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it like Kobe would have done it. Like take it and turn it, turn it into, turn it into fuel for something great and not allowing it to just be this heavy weight that slows your life and stops you. Because guess what? Those sands of your own time are still burning away, even though you're allowing yourself to stay in this stagnant position. Protect your space, protect your mental peace, protect your emotional well-being. I think one of the things that I would love for people to take away from this, don't allow the fact that he was so fervently loved. And when I say he, this doesn't just necessarily necessarily apply to Kobe. I would hope that you apply this to anybody who has ever meant anything. First of all, while they are here, just like with my grandfather, I didn't need to be at a funeral for him because I wanted to hold on to watching him sitting in his chair, watching Gunsmoke at my grandma's house. Well, at his house. I I mean, of course, I'm going to say at my grandma's house. But, you know, sitting there and watching him halfway doze off in his chair. And if you go to turn the television off, he's going to be like, oh, I'm watching it. You know, like I, that's, that's my last memory. Like that's what I get to hold on to. I would hope that as people pay attention to those around them, if they mean something to you, speak on it now, live your life every day, interacting with that person as though you will not be able to pick up the phone and call them again later. You will not be able to, you know, go and hang out with them and go grab dinner every day, every moment, embrace it. Like, you know, as cliche as it sounds, live every day like it's your last. I don't want that to sound like something negative, you know, or just go out there and be reckless. But I wait, I go to bed every night and I'm content with the person that I was every day. And if I did make some missteps and I'm, you know, I had some shortfalls or whatever, if I can't address it that night, I I do my best to address it the next day, even if if, even if it's something internal within myself. So when it comes to grief, I would hope that we don't just see grief as this this 
time in our life where we just have to embrace this horrible thing and all it is is something horrible and then that's it. They say like there's, you know, the stages of grief, you know, and then there's there's acceptance, there's anger. But I would hope that we focus on what did that person mean to me in my life? Why do they mean so much? And how do I move past this day, past this moment and make them proud of who I am tomorrow? Make them proud to say that they impacted my life for me to be the person that I am. With all of that that's going on, like I said, just look at the people that you care about and let them know. And it's not going and calling everybody and texting everybody and saying, oh my God, I love you so much. I mean, if that's the only thing, if that's you know what you feel compelled to do, then sure. But I'm not saying like, let, let it be heartfelt. Let it be genuine. And even if that sincerity comes in the form of you saying some random joke that lets them know that you were thinking about them that day, then you go ahead and do that. But let's not allow grief to steal any more of our sands of time. Go forth and live your life and be great. So as per usual, thank you guys for, and girls, I need to do better with that. I need to stop just saying you guys, but I know y'all know what I mean. But thank y'all so much for tuning in. Feel free to find me on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I am on Twitter. Um, If you want to send me an email, you can send me an email at talkswithtashapodcast at gmail.com. On Instagram and on Facebook, I am at Talks with Tasha. You can find me there. And if there's something that you want to share with me, of course, feel free to leave information in my comments. You can shoot me a DM, whatever it is that works for you, feel free to do it. And as always, thank you so much for listening and take care of yourself. <laughs>